Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by one of the very few people in the history of theatre who has actually won four Tony Awards. Audrey McDonald, Tony Awards for Carousel, Masterclass, Ragtime, A Raisin in the Sun. Hi, Audrey. Hello, John. Hello, Howard. How are you? Welcome. <laughs> your, your first Broadway appearance in Carousel, you won a Tony Award. It must have been quite exciting. It, it was. Um, it's funny, just recently I was doing an event for Juilliard. Um, uh-huh. I was helping them uh, to unveil a new pin that Mont Blanc had um, had done for them just for their 100th anniversary. And they had in the display case at the boutique um, a copy of my senior recital. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was May 4th, 1993. And I sort of had a flip-out moment where I thought, I think a year later, I was nominated for a Tony Award, like to the day. The Tony nominations come out right around the first Early week May. of May. Absolutely. And I just sort of had a flip-out for a moment. I called my husband. I was like, because my husband played on my recital, and we were not even uh-huh. dating at that point. And he said, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, we need, you know, and then just need, sort of need, went back to the We need milk and eggs. Bring some home. It was a neat moment where I just went, oh, wow, a lot happened in that year. So how did you get into Carousel a year out of school? I auditioned. I actually, my Broadway uh, debut was in a sec- the Secret Garden. The Secret Garden. The Secret Garden. Uh-huh. Right. Um, I've been doing the tour of that. I left Juilliard to do the tour of the Secret Garden, um, and then came back to finish my degree, and then went back out on the road immediately after graduating from Juilliard in '93. And while I was on the road, uh, my agent called me and said, "We have an audition for Carousel." And so that's when I started flying in from various cities around the country to audition and then call back, call back, call back, and then the final call back. And uh, yeah, and then I just left Secret Garden and went straight into rehearsals for Carousel. And you became Carrie Pipperidge? Yes, Carrie Pipperidge, yes, yes. But jumping back, even before Carousel, I was struck by something. Uh, several articles commented that your parents got you involved in doing theater because you were hyperactive and they were yes. looking for a way to channel your energy. Yes. So that, that Ritalin was not on the horizon, musical theater was? Yes. My parents really, um, they were both educators. They are both educators. And um, when I was most definitely a hyperactive child and, and they knew that I had a lot of musical ability. And there's a lot of musical ability in my family. My dad started as his music teacher. Um, and a band director, and he played the trumpet and, and trombone and all these instruments. And my this mom, is growing up out in California. In California, and my mom uh, was a singer and played the piano. Both of my grandmothers were pianists and piano teachers. And anyway, so they knew I had this ability, and, and when the doctor said, you need to channel her energy or we need to put her on some sort of medication, they said, let's put her into dance and, and piano lessons and, and voice lessons, and that's how it all basically started. Had you always thought, though, that you'd be a performer, or did you have other other ideas in mind before? I really, I don't do anything else. It's 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 a little sad now. I just I've never thought of myself as anything but. So when you were a kid, you always wanted to be a performer, yes, of one sort or another. Yeah, I think at one point I wanted to be a senator, but I still wanted to be a performer too. And <laughs> a, I think, a singing senator. Well, senators are kind of performers anyway, if you think about <laughs> it. So I, I I think it was at the time during Love Boat when what's his name right after Fred that? Grandy. Yeah, Fred Grandy. I think he became a senator. Or mm-hmm. representative so you saw it as a natural segue. Well, yes. And I Ronald guess. Reagan, for that matter, Reagan, became president. Schwarzenegger. So. Yes, some good, some bad. But anyway, you know, <laughs> just point being that I, I, um, I was politics was sort of interesting to me, but it was always other than that than performing and being on the stage. And and your family was was comfortable with that. They didn't say, oh, you should get a 
a, a, a real job. No, my my family said you must get a degree uh-huh. so that you can teach. You must have something to fall back on mm-hmm. and fall back on and fall back on and fall back on. But they certainly never sort of squashed my enthusiasm for, for performing, and they knew that it was something that um, I I felt the most comfortable doing. So. So what was your first performance of, of any any major st- uh, size? You know, not not in school plays, that kind of thing. But well, I worked know. at a dinner theater growing oh, yeah. up in Fresno, California, uh-huh. and they did eight they did a eight to ten musicals a year, and they had a little junior company like Mickey Mouse type club of kids who performed at cabaret a half uh-huh. an hour before uh, um, each performance every night, and each with each show we did a different themed cabaret. So I basically learned the entire musical theater canon by the time I was sixteen, doing these shows, doing eight different cabarets, you know, throughout the year. Um, my first show, big role in a show at the that theater. Um, I guess was Evita. I was Ava and Evita when I was 16, um, which was very controversial even back then. The whole colorblind casting thing was a big issue at the theater there because mm-hmm. it was double cast with another Caucasian woman who was much more age-appropriate. And people would call in and, and say, is the black one or the white one performing tonight? Or <laughs> you know, It was Fresno, California, not you know the most sophisticated of towns. But, uh, but then there were some people who were very upset with the fact that I was playing this role you know, as well. But that was my first sort of major major role there. So how did you react to that when you were hearing people calling up? That well, that kind of stuff just uh, sort of strengthens my resolve, just makes me, in a way, sort of more determined to succeed. Um, I have a very competitive streak in me when it, when it comes to that, and it has more to do with, I think, wanting to prove people wrong, you know, and also keep busting down doors, not necessarily just for myself. I mean, at that time, you know, when you're 16, it's, it's just like, I want to prove everybody wrong. Yes, a 16-year-old black mm-hmm. girl can play this part. But now as an adult, it's more about just continuing to break down the barriers. So being cast as Carrie Pipperidge, which was not a, a black role when mm-hmm. written back in the 40s, mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of also a groundbreaking, I guess, in a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. Yeah, yeah and that's the, to the credit of Nick, Nick, Nick Heitner, who just decided, you know, I'm going to cast who I think should play the part. Again, colorblind. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, it's a, it's a raging debate in theater that goes on and on, you know, to this day. And I think there are times when it's appropriate. And then, of course, I think there are times when it's probably not so appropriate. But um, whenever it is appropriate um, or even, you know, slightly groundbreaking, I'm I'm all for it. Well, of course, Diane Carroll had appeared years earlier in No Strings, That's another right. Rogers musical, not Hammerstein, but Rogers musical. Mm-hmm. And there was never any mention in the show, whatever, of race. It never no. entered it. No, 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 no. Actually, yeah. it's wonderful. I, I went to that Oprah Winfrey weekend um, last year, that Legends, where she honored all these women. And um, we all sat at this luncheon at her house, and I was seated between Diane Carroll and Ruby Dee. Mm. And at the end of the luncheon, I said to Oprah, thank you so much. You, you, you seated me between the ladies who were responsible for my career, basically, as far as busting down doors and, you know. And groundbreakers, and so Groundbreakers on Broadway. And yeah. she said, I know. You <laughs> 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 think I didn't plan that? I was like, okay. <laughs> so, yes, Diane Carroll, especially someone. Let me ask you, you graduated high school in Fresno mm-hmm. and came straight out to Juilliard? Mm-hmm. Juilliard has different tracks. Yes, There's indeed. the theater track. There's the music track. Were you studying both theater and vocal performance, or were you already tracked into one or the other when you got there? Well, no, I, I went to a performing arts high school, uh, very much like fame, you know, uh, that whole sort of thing, the whole, like LaGuardia. It's very much like Or, or, or PA here in New yes, York, performing yes, arts. Yes. And um, I auditioned for Juilliard because I knew it was the top school in the country. And I auditioned in in voice because I figured that was my strongest suit at the time. 
Um, so I ended up in the classical uh, voice program. What what I didn't understand at the time was that that meant that I would solely be that that's all I would be studying. And so when I got there, I was a bit confused. I didn't really I didn't really get the gist of the fact that that's I would not be allowed to have acting classes or movement classes or anything like that. That it would just be voice, and I would get everything as far as voice was concerned. You know, every every diction, you know, French and German and Italian and English diction and 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 the vocal literature of all those classes and courses and and. The, the the theory training, you know, on solfege and all that stuff, but I would not get any of the other. What, what I would see, the acting students getting in the theater department, and that was very frustrating for me. I felt like the whole time I was there, I was in the wrong program. But now in hindsight, you had this classical training. Yes. Is, is that a benefit to you now, do you think? Absolutely. I, it helped me certainly to discover more of my voice than I realized was there at the time. When I got to Juilliard, I didn't you know, I, I sang classical music because that's what they wanted me to do on the auditions. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got to sing some Mozart. All right, you know, and I was studying voice, so I knew all about that. But um, yeah, I only did it because I had to. And certainly now, in hindsight, I, I, I certainly would never have been cast in master class had I not gone to Juilliard, had I not had that training. And um, it's certainly it's it's certainly been very beneficial. Well, were you able to take any acting classes at Juilliard, or were you kind of excluded nothing. from that? Nothing. Nothing. They do have that. The program was very rigid at that that time. Since I've left the school, they have uh, there was really no performance opportunity at all for um, an undergraduate uh, vocal major, major. And now they have much. They have opera workshop, which is for the younger kids, you so, know, and they can do that. to win four Tonys, two of them which were in plays, not musicals, mm-hmm. you must have some knowledge of acting. Where did you pick up the ability to act, or was that just a natural thing that you were born with? Well, I certainly had been on stage for about nine years before I even got so to So just Juilliard. the experience? Yeah, well, certainly that, and then just... I've never really studied acting formally, no. Mm-hmm. So it's just been, I've been also sharing the stage with incredible people. I learn from everybody, you know, the good ones and the bad ones. Mm-hmm. And mostly they've all been great. And so I, you know, being on stage for a year opposite Zoe Caldwell, you're going to learn a thing or two. You know, it's also sink or swim. Otherwise, you're going to drown. <laughs> you know, you got to get on, you got to get on stage with that force of nature every night. So, yeah, it's basically been through um, practical application of the craft. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Zoe Caldwell and your daughter is mm-hmm. named Zoe. Mm-hmm. I can only assume is tribute to her. Yep. How much was Zoe actually a mentor to you during that process, or how much was it just that you were li- had to live up to a standard? She was a, a mentor in every sense, was and continues to be a mentor in every sense of the word, um, not only on stage and helping me to sort of find this character and, and encourage She and her husband, Robert Whitehead, God rest his soul, um, last of a great gentleman producers will never see that breed ever again but at any rate um the two of them really encouraged me to 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 be as feisty as I, I could with that character to to really not be afraid of being angry or not being liked by the audience at a certain point to just sort of really find my center and and fight against this evil presence that I considered Maria Callas to be by the end of the the piece and um just in life in general I still go to Zoe I have to call her Big Zoe now, but I still go to Big Zoe for, um, you know, questions about career. She helped me with Marie Christine. When I was doing Marie Christine, she came to see it a number of times. And, you know, since she was certainly one of the definitive Medeas, um, had a lot to say to me about that role. And when I was doing Henry IV, she's, she's just always been there. Well, I was going to ask you about Henry IV because mm-hmm. as you talk, if you've had no acting training, it's one thing to to have so much experience on stage. But jumping into Shakespeare for the first time... Oy. 
yeah. <laughs> well, you've said it beautifully. I really don't know what else there is. One but, word. But it, I mean, it was yeah. it's, it's extraordinary, and you are in the you were in the company of of great yes and, Shakespearean performers, great Shakespearean performers, and then some people who had never done Shakespeare in their life before. Ethan Hawke had never done any Shakespeare, um, but once again, surrounded by wonderful people. Um, a, a, a director who trusted us, Jack O'Brien, and um, I, you know, I had my little team in the background too, with people like Zoe Caldwell saying, you know, she came to the, my first performance or close to my first performance and said, "Get in here," and had me in my dressing room for about an hour after the show that night, saying, "This, this, this, this," you know, and I, I, I live for that, you know, and for me, if you're not studying, if you're not growing as an artist, then you need to get off the stage. You're done. How much? Do you make a choice of, I'm going to look at doing a play now, I'm going to look at doing a musical, I'm going to go out and do concert work? How much can it be planned? How much is it a lot happy of it, accidents? A lot of it is is happy accident. You know, it happens to come along at the right time. And and then, you know, as much of what can be planned is planned. I mean, it's it's very difficult in this business, you know, because if I can say, yes, I'm ready to do a play now, but, you know, there'll be other producers who say, well, we're not ready to produce you at a play right now, so make it work, you know. But I, I do tend to miss one desperately when I'm doing a lot of the other. I've been doing a lot of concert work lately, which was very important to me to do so that I could spend more time at home. It was really difficult to do Henry IV and Raisin in the Sun all in one year, one theatrical year. Um, there's a lot of time away from the baby, um, which, which I can't call her baby anymore. She's five, but that was difficult. Um, but now, um, having done so much concert work, I'm, I went to see Cheetah's opening night and was so desperate to jump up on that stage with her just because that's the kind of performer she is and she's infectious and you see her and you just, you just, you're just moved, uh, by what she's doing. But I, I am really starting to miss being an actual book show again. And so it's coming. I mean, I have much coming up so I, it's, I'm going to get my shot in a minute but. yet there is the challenge when you're doing your concert work that stuff that's booked sometimes years, years out in advance I know what I'm doing in January of 2007 right now you know I mean it's it, things can be that booked and uh, but the the hard thing about concert work is it's just you up on that stage and uh, that can that's that's fatiguing and it can get a little lonely especially if you like to have that sort of interplay I mean I have the interplay between me and the audience um, but I, I love the tennis matches that you can come up with on stage with another performer. That's Only by yourself. There's no one else to play off of. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, and uh, my next big project, uh, it's two one-woman operas, so I really have literally no <laughs> one on the stage. I have lots of props, but no one on the stage with me, so that's going to be difficult. But it is still, at least it's a book, and, and there's a specific Well, you, you've been on a very fast track in the last 10 years, last decade, mm. from you know, 1994 with Carousel, which mm. was your breakthrough. Yeah. Over the last 10 years, now the phone is probably ringing a lot. People wanting you to do shows and all that. How do you decide what you do and don't want to do, other than you know, family considerations. Also, what moves me? I have to be Art- moved by the ma- material, you know? Art- uh, uh, artistically speaking. Artistically, yeah, what yeah, moves yeah. me, yes. Um, wh- whether it's a song I'm choosing to sing, um, uh, music I'm recording for an album, uh, you know, like this this uh, project I'm getting ready to do at Houston Grand Opera, it's, it's material that moves me beyond belief. And so, uh, you know, it's going to be a big sacrifice time-wise from my family. But... Um, it's something that I really believe in. We say the Houston Grand Opera. Is it operatic material or is mm-hmm. it really? It is. Um, Get- well, yes and no. One piece is uh, one piece was written in 1958 by Francis Poulenc called La Voix Humaine, the human voice, and we're singing it in English. 
Um, and uh, it's about a woman on the phone uh, breaking up with her lover. Uh, Jean Cocteau wrote the book and uh, the, the play and then the libretto. And she dies at the end of it. And so Houston said, well, that's just one 45-minute opera. We need to have some sort of curtain raiser. That can't be one evening. So they commissioned Michael John Lacusa to write a companion piece. So that's um, the other piece I'm doing. And that's about a woman online um, <laughs> who has met someone online that she's sent her phone number to saying, okay, go ahead, call me. And she's waiting for him to call. So that's so, the curtain raiser. So both very contemporary but also falling back in your classical training at Juilliard. It would be an interesting mix. yes. But you mentioned Michael John Lacusa, and you have been very uh, upfront about championing the younger musical theater writers mm-hmm. and people like Michael John, uh, Adam Gettle, Ricky mm-hmm. and Gordon. Is that has that proved to be a challenge for you to get people to accept their work because they're lesser known? When you go out and do that in concert, is it is is there an appetite for it, or do you find people still wanting to hear? The song from Ragtime, the song from Carousel. I not necessarily, and maybe maybe um, I'm naive in that respect. I think an audience, you know, as long as you give them both, you know, you know, you, I think when you go out and, and perform, when I come out, go out and do these concerts, audience members want to hear what they they know, but they also want to be educated as well. And a lot of what they know is from my albums. Therefore, when I get out there and I st- you, you hear the vamp to whether it's Stars in the Moon or um, or now people are starting to know the Seven Deadly Sins stuff that I did. People start to applaud ahead of time, which is fantastic to me because that tells me that well, they're aware. It's marvelous that you know, you're know you championing that kind of work and bringing it forward. Oh, I really believe in it. And I think there's been a nice movement that's sort of come up in the past at least eight years where people are really starting to pay attention. But there's also somewhat of a synergy in that in some cases these people are writing this material specifically for you. Yes, well I'm lucky in that case, but then we see something like Light in the Piazza, you know, which Adam wrote and has become a big hit and is, you know, very exciting for Lincoln Center, very exciting for Adam, and I think therefore um, exciting for all of the the composers. The same thing with Michael John, he had See What I Want to See at the public this fall, and he's got House of Bernarda Alba this this spring at Lincoln Center. Plus, he's got this opera. It's it's really, really, I think, um, important just to continue to make the whole idea and the whole notion of new works and new musicals just keep it out there because we can't keep doing revivals. I mean, we we can do them, but it can't be all there is on Broadway. Because at a certain point, you just you're you're eating yourself. Yes, yes, we have to continue to nourish and replenish the art that is musical theater. So. We're talking about uh, contemporary current composers, Adam Gettle, uh, Michael John Lacuse. Why don't we play one of the songs from your album, uh, How Glory Goes? A lot of very good tracks. Do you want to pick one and tell uh, us why? Yeah, well, well, How Glory Goes is something that's very special to me. How I first was introduced to Adam Gettle's work was through Floyd Collins, and um, I must have seen it 175,000 times, and my mm-hmm. husband was playing the bass in it as well. And uh, this song is uh, uh, at the end of the show when Floyd realizes he's dying, and he starts to wonder what heaven will be like. A song from Floyd Collins, but in this case, the title song of Audra McDonald's CD, How Glory Goes, track 13, kind of uh, way down in the in the mix of songs, which include uh, standards like Johnny Mercer's Any Place I Hang My Hide Is Home, Harold Arlen's music, um, songs like uh, Bill, the Jerome mm-hmm. Kern song, and uh, it's an interesting mix on, on that CD. I was sort of exploring with that CD um, the, the, the older established composers um, link to the new composers. Uh-huh. I mean, I was trying to explore um, just the the bridge uh, back to them or 
towards the new composers, as it were. So, so are these songs that are favorites of yours absolutely. that you chose? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had wonderful luck working with Nonesuch Records where they've really left me alone with all my artistic choices. They let me choose whatever I want to do to sing for each of these albums, and then they just... You know, they help me sort of polish it and put it together, but they've really given me free reign as far as that's concerned. Of course, much of it on the album is Broadway, like even, uh, you know, House of Flowers. You have I Never uh, Has Seen Snow, the, the Harold Arlen Truman Capote song. Which is just one of my favorite songs ever. It's There's just a, a more beautiful song I don't think has ever been written, and I, I, I'm... It, for me, it's like having a vitamin C shot or something. Whenever I sing that song, I just feel so good after. So, Are these songs you do in, in your concerts? Absolutely, yeah. I do a, a wide range of material in my concerts, and it depends on where I'm performing. Um, if I perform there recently, you know, what kind of audience it's going to be. You know, that, that, that really dictates a lot about what, what I will choose to sing. Um, you know, when I'm down in Miami in an afternoon you know, concert, you know, where there's, it skews, the audience skews to be a little bit older. We're going to do less of the um, new uh, young composers material. We do some. Mm-hmm. We definitely, I mm-hmm. never abandon that. I do some, but I'll also do more of the standards. More of the old standards, yeah. I'm actually getting ready to do a concert at, at Carnegie Hall on the 29th of April, and we're actually doing, we're not going to do, um, it's going to really be all of the old-fashioned Broadway Material mm-hmm. people are always saying you never sing enough Sondheim or you don't. Where is the Rodgers and Hammerstein or the da da da? You know, so it's really gonna we're gonna really just sort of go through the entire sort of Broadway songbook and do real good old fashioned Broadway. Well, that's interesting because you're you're too young to have remembered these songs in their heyday. I mean, you certainly weren't around the 1930s and 40s when these songs were written. No. But it's uh, the music I listened to growing up anyway. Did you? Your, yeah, your, your parents was, played this at home? Well, yes, and being that I was in this, this dinner theater growing up, um, this was the music I was listening to. I wasn't listening to Duran Duran and the Go-Go's or any of that. I was listening to musical theater. Do, so. do, you, do you still listen to this at home, this kind of music? I When I get a chance, I mean, now I'm hearing... You know, Beauty and the Beast, day in and day out, or Dora the Explorer. You're hearing music appropriate for a five-year-old. <laughs> for a five-year-old, yes, I don't, get, <laughs> I don't get much say anymore. But as we talk about style of music, I want to bring you back to actually something you were quoted as saying. This is already five years ago about where your voice is going and what you think it should be singing, and your question of whether you might even shelve musical theater in favor of opera. You were quoted as saying, it's starting to take on a life of its own, and it is an operatic voice. I can see that's the direction it wants to go, and it would be a shame for me not to explore that. Is that, and you even talked about that the voice matures until you're about 35, so we're getting there. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you feel about that now? Are you looking to do more opera or... You were just saying you really miss doing a book musical. Mm-hmm. To some, an opera is a book musical. Absolutely, sure. Um, but is that a direction we might see you looking for more opera work? I, I, I am certainly, in the next three years, I'll be doing three operas. And that's, a, you know, that's different and new. And uh, it's an opportunity that has come up, and it's time for me to, to explore it. Can you tell us what they are? Or, well, yes, uh, I've told you two. The, 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 uh-huh. the two at Houston. Yes, and there's another one. Um, that has been bandied about that is definitely happening, but I'm not at liberty to actually announce it, although I think someone else in the cast has already announced it, so I'll just say that much. Um, And it's in L.A. at some point. So how about I say that, and you guys can figure out who already announced it. (laughs) How about here in New York on on Broadway or off-Broadway? I will be. I will be. um, I don't know if I'm allowed to announce this either, but I will be on Broadway uh, in the spring of 2007. 
2007. Yes. Is that when the concert tour kind of winds down, so you have time to do a Broadway I'm show? sort of like, uh, what's his name, David Cassidy. Uh-huh. He, When he was doing the Partridge <laughs> Family, would do concerts on the weekends. I'm always doing concerts somewhere uh-huh. at some point. So the concert stuff will sort of always be happening, and then it just it just fits into where the rest of my schedule is going. Since we're on the subject of Broadway, let's talk about Ragtime. Okay. How did you get involved with Ragtime? I don't know who on their side of the table recommended me, but I, I was already working with Terrence McNally on Masterclass. Uh-huh. And I certainly knew Lynn and Steve's work from Once on this Island in my favorite year. But I was just asked to do the uh, the workshop. Um, and that's how it got started. So I went up for that one week in Toronto where um, we all sat around the big table and the only person who knew any of the music at that point was Stokes. And he sang Wheels of a Dream from the table by himself as a solo. Sarah had no solo, nothing. Sarah she, was was your character. My character. Mm-hmm. She had really nothing. She, I, All I had was the, the ha- latter half of Wheels of a Dream and um, the beginning of President before she gets beaten to death. So not <laughs> much of a solo. And then that's when they um, wrote, uh, two days into that workshop, that's when they said, what are we doing? You need a song. And that's when they wrote Daddy's Son for me. That's kind of what workshops are about, is yeah, trying to develop it. Absolutely, show. absolutely. And Lynn and Steve are, are wonderful and, and very collaborative when it comes to that and, uh, you know, seeing the bigger picture. So what was the song that they wrote for you then? Daddy's Son. That's when they wrote it. And yeah. how did that work in the show? Well, Lynn said, you know, we need, because we want to be on Sarah's side, and to see her do something as terrible as, you know, try to kill her child, and then to see everything just sort of be all right with new mu- uh, um, wheels of a dream we realized we sarah needed a voice to explain to us and to ask for the the baby's forgiveness therefore the audience's forgiveness so that we're on our side so that we feel her loss when she dies at the end of the first act and so that's when they decided um we we need to have sarah have a moment with the child to see that they have now bonded and that she can move on with her relationship with the child by asking forgiveness from the child for what she's done would you say that we've play it now, should we? Okay, now sounds like a good time to play the tune. Good time as any. <laughs> Audrey McDonald from Ragtime, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Aaron's song, Your Daddy's Son from Ragtime. We've been talking about all of these musicals. We've touched briefly on, on Henry V, but certainly your most recent Broadway uh, engagement was the much-acclaimed revival of A Raisin in the Sun. Mm. And I spoke with uh, Felicia Rashad once, and she talked about the differing audiences that that show brought together. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about just the experience because we have you, the Broadway star, Sanaa Lathan from film, Felicia, best known for her television work, though she has plunged deeply into theater now, mm-hmm. and, of course, uh, this guy, Sean Combs. Yeah. Um, it, it, was, it was one of those things where you, if you look at it on, a, on paper, you think, wow, yes, that's going to be a diverse group of people coming to sit down in that audience and it could make for you know a a volatile you know group of folks you know but what it ended up doing was uniting i you've never seen a more different group of people come and sit down and then leave in the exact same headspace in the exact same mood um all crying at the same time literally i mean you want to talk about blowing up stereotypes you'd have guys with their hats on the side with every bit of bling they could have in the front row, you know, trying not to let people see them wipe away their tears, you know, (laughs) man, you know, even when Sean was ill and he was out, he was very ill for a time and he was out for about four performances 
and the producers stood in the lobby and worked hard to keep a lot of the Diddy fans in those seats, and they stayed and then thanked the producers afterwards. Man, thank you for telling me to stay. That was great. Was was that a play that you felt? I mean, sometimes you can sense whether an audience sort of is is going along. If you if you're doing a musical, you know if they know the tunes. You can even see them out there bobbing along. Right. Was Raisin in the Sun, do you think it was new to most of the people who saw it? I think it was new to at least 50% of the people in that audience, um, certainly, and then probably new to 75% of the people who'd actually, as far as actually seeing it. Maybe they'd read it in school or, you know, seen a little bit of the movie, but, you know, actually the live experience, you know, there's not many people um, that were in our audience that had seen the original production, you know, or maybe, you know, regional production. So, um, but... With a play as powerful as that and as indestructible as that, um, that that's you know a testament to Lorraine Hansberry's work. It's going to it's about the human condition, and so the rea- the reaction and the response was universal. It was always the same response. Well, you mentioned the uh, what did you call it, the Diddy contingent or something? Yes, as in uh, Sean Combs' <laughs> the Diddy contingent, fans, yeah. the Diddy fans. Yeah, I imagine there were a lot of people in that audience who would not normally go to a Broadway show. They went to see whether it be Sean Combs or somebody else in the right. cast. That's right, absolutely. And so it was an introduction to theater for a lot of them. And yeah. um, and, and many were quite young, I noticed. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, our matinees, forget it. You know, we'd have truckloads of, I don't, I, mean, I don't know where they, you know, busloads of these kids coming in the balcony be, would be, be packed with nothing but kids who'd be screaming for about the first half hour, just, wah, you know, not really mm-hmm. settling down. But mm-hmm. even then, the play would get them to the point where when they find out that Sean has lost the money, you'd hear, oh, no, oh, <laughs> man, oh, no, oh, she's mad, you know, but really into yeah. it. Now, how did that affect you as a performer, hearing that feedback from the audiences? It was, it was, it was. It was rough um, and also exhilarating. It was both uh-huh. because I was not used to that, you know, um, to having sort of audience participation in the <laughs> way that we did certain nights. Um, but at the same time, I was very moved at, 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 at how they would end up responding in the end, which means and, – and I felt that we really had done our job when – when we would get the response, you know, which like I said was practically every single night, you know, kids, you know, Diddy fans, you know, theater aficionados, you know, film buffs, whatever, all having the same reaction to mm-hmm. the piece. Well, you could certainly hear what was going on. Did you cheat and look at the audience every now and then just to try to see what was going on? Oh, no, no, especially no. with my character. I mean, Ruth was so, it, it is such a downtrodden, almost broken woman. Uh-huh. Almost think that life inside of her that baby inside of her is what is keeping her from completely crumpling and you know her whole big story is i'm thinking about getting rid of that life but um so no for me and it was really the hardest role i've ever done even though i was something that was the closest to you know i was a woman in my 30s um a black woman in my 30s so i i should have understood a lot of this and you were a mother yourself so you could identify myself yeah and it was the rough it was the hardest role maybe it's because it was so close to me you know Hmm. and my director kenny leon worked me hard i've i've never worked with someone who was more demanding in 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 almost a tyrannical loving way if that's at all possible he he was never satisfied but always supportive and i love that kind of director because i i feel like i I've grown so much from that that experience as an actress, and he never settled for it. He figured out what all my tricks were early on, and just called me on it. So harder than Henry Fourth, and harder than Ragtime. Harder Absolutely, than, really. Hard, yeah, and also Ruth never leaves the stage. 
Mm. She never she never leaves that apartment. And it's she, a very emotional show. Very, very emotional, draining. and she's just always there, and she's always working. You, I mean, my character, you never... I mean, the only time I sat down is when I found out that we were going to move. Other than that, she's ironing, she's cooking, she's cleaning. She never stops. Mm. So... I normally don't bring up the Tony Awards on these programs, but I read something very interesting uh, that when uh, you did not win for Marie Christine, mm-hmm. you were relieved. Oh, so relieved. We so rarely hear people say that, <laughs> so I need to ask if you can talk a little about why you uh, felt that way. Oh, because how do you sustain that? First of all, the winning a Tony Award has, I think, little to nothing to do with you as the performer. You can only go out and do your work. It's not like you can campaign for it. Not like you can, like, what am I going to do? Take the entire, you know, every Tony voter out to lunch or any. You can't do anything. And, you know, even if the Tony voters come on tonight, you've got given a bad show. You, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is just do your work. So the whole idea of, like, oh, well, now she's won three, and, and every time she's been nominated, she's won. I mean, there's... There, there was such pressure, even though I knew it was sort of ridiculous pressure because I had really no say in the matter. So when it didn't happen, I just, it just like I didn't have to live up to that. Every time she steps on stage, she wins a Tony thing anymore. I didn't have to live up to it. It was gone. All that was done. I, what I didn't know at the time is I was actually um, a month and a half pregnant at that, that Tony Awards. Did not know oh. at the time. Had, it was the most fun I've ever had at the Tonys. It, it turned out to be like the, this like seven-hour date for me and my husband, and we went party-hopping afterwards and just had a ball. So it was actually the most fun I've ever had at the Tonys is the year I didn't win because I could have a good time. But you've been nominated five times, winning four times. That's an 800 batting average. Yeah. Even Babe Ruth didn't come close to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good batting average. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a neat thing. Um, but I, I really try not to think about it too much because there's there's still work to be done, so much yeah, work yeah, to be done. Yeah. One thing that you're going to be doing in the very near future, January 5th through 9th, is an event going on in New York, but also in other parts of the country, the New York Times Arts and Leisure Weekend, and you and Stokes Mitchell are performing, or not performing, participating in that. Yeah, Stokes and I are going to be uh, doing the Times Talk on January 7th at mm-hmm. 8 o'clock, I think. Which is a Saturday, I A believe? Saturday yeah. evening, yes. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. The, the event in and of itself, the whole weekend sounds just spectacular, all the different people they're having, you know, from all the different uh, fields of, of performing arts and whatnot, and just uh, anything that celebrates the arts and culture, is, especially for them to bring it all together and have discounted museums and, and, and movies they can go to and, you know, cheaper theater tickets. It's just a fantastic thing. And Stokes and I love chit-chatting, so the fact that people are actually going to sit down and watch us do that <laughs> is, uh, well, you know, good luck to them, because we may be up there for hours, that's for sure. Well, as, as I understand the uh, New York Times Arts and Leisure Weekend, it's, um, it's it's across the different arts. It's not just theater. It's also film, yes. it's dance, everything. it's you know, music, that sort of thing. Fine art as well, everything. Right. On the uh, the theatrical side of things, besides yourself and Stokes, Donna McKechnie, B.B. Newworth, Michael Cerveris, Hank Azaria, uh, Edie Falco, Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. even a soon-to-be Broadway star, Harry Connick Jr., is yeah. participating. Yeah, it's fantastic. Actually, Michael Service has been my leading man. The past four shows I've done, he's been my leading man. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. So wow. that should be, I'm sure there'll be a wonderful evening. And for those of you listening, if you haven't seen Sweeney Todd, go see it, go see it, go see it. <laughs> and also, it. Uh, let me just give the website if people want to find out. And it's not just in New York. There's other uh, other cities are participating in the New York Times Arts and Leisure Weekend as well. It's www.nytimes.com slash AL Weekend. AL, I presume, means arts and leisure. Again, www.nytimes.com slash AL Weekend 
for that uh, event on January 5th through the 9th. Yeah. It's going to be great, really. I'm looking forward to attending it myself. I'm yeah. looking forward to hear what you and Stokes have to say. <laughs> so am I. I have no idea. <laughs> we'll find out. And on that note, Audra McDonald, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, John. Thank you, Howard. Thanks, Audra. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>